reason. Being Baptist means something. You know, we, we live in an era in which a lot of the distinctions between groups have, have sort of become blurry. We live in the age of the non-denominational church. I was reading a report this week that said that, that every denominational group is experiencing decline, some more than others. In fact, the only group of churches in the United States not experiencing decline are churches that label themselves as non-denominational. Now, I'm going to clue you in on a little secret. Most of those non-denominational churches practice church autonomy. They baptize believers by immersion. They're Baptists. They just don't like using the Baptist word. But here's the thing. We're Baptists, and being Baptist means something. There are distinctive things about what we believe. Now, we share a common faith with our Methodist and Presbyterian brothers and sisters, even with our non-denominational brothers and sisters. We share a, a common faith. We're able to affirm the same core, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who was sent here as the second person of the Trinity to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, to be buried, to rise on the third day for the remission of our sins. This is the core of who we are. That's the, the core confession of the Christian faith. And we share common faith with folks that we share also differences with. And so I want to be very clear as we talk today and as I talk about Baptist distinctives and Baptist differences, it doesn't mean that they're wrong and we're right. It doesn't mean that they're not Christians and we are. What it means is there are some distinctives here that are different for us about what we say. Now, obviously, we believe these things to be correct. Otherwise, we would not believe them. But it does not mean that they are not Christians. But it also does not mean that just simply because we have a common faith does not mean that the distinctions and the differences aren't important. They are. They are important. I have, I have to admit, I, I'm probably a little, a little more zealous on this point than some of you might be because I was not born and raised Baptist. I chose to be a Baptist. I don't know why anyone would choose to be a Baptist, but I did. And so those differences are more apparent to me, maybe, than they are to you. The, the importance of those differences, maybe, are more visible to me than they are to you who were born and raised. Some of you born and raised right here in this church. What we're going to do over the next, honestly, it will probably be a long time, is we're going to have every now and then some sermon series that sort of look at some of these Baptist distinctives. We're not going to be working through in a straight line. We're going to do some other things as well. But every now and then we're going to take a, a step back from what we normally do, which is this sort of step-by-step -step verse, uh, you know, verse-by-verse 
journey through a book, and we're going to step back and we're going to look at some of these things that make us Baptist. And this is the first of a series that we're going to be doing over the next several Sundays on the Bible. On the Bible. And, and we're going to be looking at, at what the Bible is, but we're also going to be looking at what it means for us to be Baptist engaging with the Bible. But before we go any further, let's turn to the Bible. Let's turn to Scripture. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If, if you don't know, Deuteronomy is very close to the front of Scripture. It's the fifth book of Scripture. I should have known that. It's the last book of the Pentateuch, so it would be five. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to be starting with verse 4. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your doorpost. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we open your word today to learn about your word, I pray that it would do for us what it promises that it will do. That it would shape us and form us, that it would correct us, that it would, it would turn us into your people. God, as we open your word, as we study it this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. This this passage that we've looked at, we, we've we've looked at a couple of times actually. It's this passage. You, you might remember this. We call it the Shema, right? Because that word Shema is the Hebrew word. That's that first word right there. The word that means listen or hear. We, we've looked at it. In fact, we looked at it just uh, two weeks ago when we were looking at. The, the commandments of Jesus, right? The, the, the greatest commandment found right here in the Shema. Love the Lord your God. So we looked at it then. And actually, several months ago, we did a whole series through it. So, so why are we looking at it again? Why are we coming back to it? Why does the, this passage from Deuteronomy keep coming up? Well, it, it keeps coming up because there are certain verses in Scripture that we might think of as, as central verses or linchpin verses. Verses that... that are not necessarily more important than other verses in Scripture because all Scripture is the Word of God, but, but certain verses that maybe help us understand verses and the rest of the Bible better. Certain verses in Scripture that, that, that maybe help us understand God and His people and the relationship between God and His people a little bit better. We, we can refer to these, I, I use this phrase already, as linchpin verses. Y'all, y'all know what a linchpin is, right? It's that, that thing that connects two things, that, that everything sort of moves around. That, that if you sort of take it out, things fall apart a little bit. 
I would offer that, that this passage, these verses here, the Shema, are linchpin verses. After all, Jesus points to them as part of the greatest commandment. Another linchpin verse, at least certainly a linchpin verse for me, you've heard me reference it a lot, is that last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25. And in those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Another linchpin verse might be Romans 8.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? This is telling us something about God. It's telling us something about his people and telling us something about the relationship between the two. In a way that helps us understand and interpret the rest of scripture. Perhaps one of the most famous linchpin verses found in the third chapter of the book of John. John three sixteen. And as I said yesterday at Mrs. Barnes' funeral, I would add 17 and 18 onto that as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Because Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But those who do not confess him as Savior stand condemned already, while those who confess him are redeemed already. John 3.16 is great, but you've got to keep reading. But it helps us understand something about God, his relationship to his people, and how those two interact, right? In John 3.16, God loves the world. We see that God loves the world. But we also see that the world needs redemption, and so he sends his son to Redeem the world, God, his people, and their relationship. So let's just, let's just take as a given that there are linchpin verses. Why might this passage from Deuteronomy, this thing that we call the Shema, why might it be a linchpin? Well, one of the things that it does is it, it shows us that God's people are to be a people of his word. They are to be people of the book. They're to be scripture-formed people. They're to be shaped by God's word. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen it. It's not even the first time we see it in Deuteronomy. If you flip back over probably just a page in your Bible to the beginning of Deuteronomy 4, you see this. Now, listen now, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am teaching you to follow so that you may live. Enter and take possession of the land of the Lord that God of your fathers is giving you. You must not add anything to what I command you or take anything from it so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God I am giving you. We see here that a clear expression that God's people are to be formed, shaped, molded, defined by his word. We, we see in verse 4, right, it starts with this declaration of who God is. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This declaration of who he is, you'll see there, if you're looking in Scripture, you'll see there that twice, both times where it says Lord, it's it's capital L-O-R-D, right? 
We've talked about that. That's, that's used in English translations to show us that the word is here is God's proper name, Yahweh. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. It's this declaration of who God is. We get into, in verse 5, the statement of our relationship with God, right? It says love. What are, what's this relationship supposed to look like? Love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and with your strength. Not with part of them, right? But with all of them. And then, as we get into 6, 7, 8, and 9, we have these extended statements about God's word and our relationship with it. We, we see in, that, that we're only able to know the truths that we have in verses 4 and 5 of who God is and what our relationship with Him is to be is because of God's Word. Verse 6, these words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. These words that I am giving you, that the God is giving us, they're the ones that, that show us who He is. We're only able to know who God is because he has given us his word. We also see that they are to be totally formative to us, right? Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk around the road, when you lie down and when you get up. I don't know about you, but that covers just about all of life, right? I don't do a whole lot of living that's not either in the house or not in the house. I don't, do a, I don't do a whole lot of living that's not when I'm awake or when I'm asleep. It covers everything. Then also, we're to use the word to, to form our children. Why do we do vacation Bible school? Do we do it because it's fun? Let me tell you, the kids might have fun, but those of us who were involved in it, are any of y'all still exhausted? I am, and I didn't really do anything. I just showed up. Do we do it because we've always done it? Do we, why do we do it? We do it so that we can impart to these kids, our kids and kids in the community, so that we can impart to them the Word of God. It's not just... Vacation fun time school, right? It's not vacation sing fun songs school. It's not vacation do wonderful crafts school. It's vacation Bible school. To, to pass the faith along, to form the generation that comes after us with Scripture. Right here we see that. We get into verse 8 bind them as signs on your head and let them be a, on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead if you've ever seen a orthodox jew pray you'll see they have, they will wrap these straps around their head and around their forearms their phylacteries they actually contain the words of the shema written on little pieces of paper in there they take it very literally now, I, I would offer, obviously, as someone who does not, in fact, pray with a phylactery on my forehead or on my hands, that 
that this is not intended to be a literal practice, but is intended by God to be a metaphor about the fact that, that we should be who we are, should be totally shaped by Scripture. Where is our head? Our head is what? It's where we think. Is our mind formed by Scripture? And, and what are our hands? Our hands are how the primary way we interact with the world, right? It's how we do. There's a reason that when I pray the benediction every week, I include our hands and be in our hands and in our doing, right? What we do in the world is to be formed by Scripture. And then there's this, this interesting bit. Write them on the doorpost of your houses and on your city gates. If any of you have ever visited a, a Jewish home, you may have noticed a, a, a thing on the doorpost of the house called a mezuzah, again, containing some of the Shema written on a scroll and placed there. So it's, it's a very important thing in a Jewish household when you move into a new house to, to have the rabbi come and, and attach the mezuzah. Some have them only on the exterior doors of their houses. I have known some who had them on every doorpost in their house because, after all, it doesn't say only on your exterior doorposts. But again, let's not think of this as a, as a literal thing because I don't know about you, but I do not, in fact, have a mezuzah on my doorpost. But what's God telling us here? What is the home? The home is the seat of the family. The doorpost is one of the structures that holds up the home, that holds up the house. If we're to have the words on our doorpost of our houses, it's the way we interact with our family is to be dictated, formed, and transformed by Scripture. And the city gate... That's society, right? That's the, the, the polis, to use the Greek word. It's to how we're to interact with each other, not just in our family, but in the world. When we, when we leave our home and enter into the city, we don't leave Scripture behind, do we? We're to take it with us. It's to guide us. So what we see here, what we see God's Word telling us in just these few verses here in Deuteronomy, what He is showing us is He's showing us who, his is, who He is, our relationship to Him, and how His Word is to form us and mediate who we are and how we engage in every aspect of our lives. In our sleeping and in our waking in our work and in our leisure, in our home and in the world around us, every aspect of our lives is to be formed and mediated and informed by God's Word. There's a phrase that you have probably heard before, people of the book. You heard this phrase before? Baptists love using that phrase to describe ourselves, and we're going to get to that in a second. But where that phrase originally comes from is it actually originally comes from Islam. 
Because Islam recognizes that there is something different about Judaism and Christianity. The other religions that Islam was coming into uh, relationship with and encountering early on were not religions that were religions of the book. They were not religions that claimed a special revelation from God that was written down in Scripture. Only Judaism and Christianity claimed that. And so Islam looks at it and sees it and sees that there is something different, special, and unique about these two religions. And so they name us as people of the book. And there's a whole lot more in Islamic law about people of the book and all that sort of stuff. But the point is not that, but the point is this. It was different. Our having scripture is unique. You know, there are Greek myths, but they are not scripture. There are the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita and these other statements of, 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 of and written works in Hinduism, but they're not Scripture the way Jews and Christians understand this to be Scripture, to be God's Word. There is something unique about what we say about Scripture. And it was recognized. It was recognized by a rival faith and named, and then in perhaps the most Baptist thing ever, we took this ugly thing that someone else was calling us and turned it into a thing that we liked about ourselves. We're people of the book. And it's true. Because God's people are to be Scripture-led, Scripture-bound, and Scripture-formed. We see that when he talks to his people before they enter the promised land. We see that throughout the New Testament. And in the 1,500 years, give or take, between the establishment of the church and the Reformation, something happens. And what happens is Scripture becomes less and less and less important and tradition and and the, the dictates of the church become more and more and more important. And so what the Reformation is, is the Reformation is a, is a movement that starts to recenter Scripture in the life and teaching of the Christian. To, to understand that Scripture trumps tradition. Now, there's nothing wrong with tradition, We all have all kinds of traditions, right? I'm going to guess that where you encounter personal traditions the most is around the holidays. How many of you, you have a a meal or a dessert or a dish that it's just not Christmas until you have it? Maybe it's a, a certain kind of cookie that mama made or it's sweet potato casserole. The one with the pecans on the top, not the marshmallows. The marshmallows are weird. It's got to be pecans. Or, 
or it's one of those things that you, 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 you've got to watch a certain Christmas movie first. That's got to be the first Christmas movie that you watch. And I don't know, for you, maybe it's on Thanksgiving after dinner. For me, it's really weird. I don't know where this came from because it's really not a thing in my parents' household. But for me, I have to watch Santa Claus come down the road in New York at the end of the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Like, if I don't see that, it's, I, I can't get into the Christmas spirit. Traditions are great. Traditions in church are good. But they can't override Scripture. And that was the, the idea of the Reformation. There's this, there's the, there are the, the things that we call the solas of the Reformation. And one of those is sola scriptura. Sola is the Latin word for alone, scriptura, the word for scripture. Scripture alone. What sola scripturis tells us is that scripture alone is to be authoritative and sufficient for our faith. Now, It doesn't mean that it's Scripture by itself. It doesn't mean that it's Scripture totally divorced from tradition and from centuries of understanding of Scripture, but that Scripture alone is to be authoritative. The Reformation sought to return Scripture as the main and supreme arbiter of truth. And we belong to... a a tradition within the Reformation that that sought not only to put Scripture back as the supreme arbiter of truth, but also sought to put the proclamation of Scripture back at the center of our common life in the church. If any of y'all were at Ms. Evans' funeral yesterday, Doug Locklear, Pastor Locklear from the Methodist Church, told a story about one Sunday, he tried to put the, the lector in the pulpit that he was going to preach from in the middle. And Jeanette, who many of you know was a lady of decided opinions, made him move it back over to the side. Now, I grew up in a Methodist church. We had a split pulpit. You had the lectern on one side, you had the pulpit on the other. If you've ever been in a Methodist church, certain Presbyterian churches, an Episcopal church, this is what you're going to see. Because what sits at the middle of their church is the table. Because the word is important, but central is what happens here at the communion table when the supper is celebrated. But if you ever come into a Baptist church, with one exception, you're going to find the pulpit in the center because the proclamation of God's word is central to what we do. Have you ever thought about that? That the way we build our churches tells us something about what we think about God and what we think about what we're here to do? Another way that we see it, we see it in our, in our architecture, right? That's the normal way we see it. But we also see it in what we say and how we say what we believe, As Baptists, we affirm a a document as our confession of faith called the Baptist Faith and Message. The Baptist Faith and Message, the first article, is about Scripture and what we believe about Scripture. But Baptist Faith and Message is 
is in a long line of confessions that are related to each other that starts with the Westminster Confession of Faith that was followed by the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689 that influenced the New Hampshire Confession of Faith in 1833 that was used as the basis for the first edition of the Baptist Faith and Message in 1925. That's our, that's our lineage that goes back. And in that lineage, in each one of those steps, Scripture is the first article of the confession. Central to the English Reformation was this understanding of Scripture being so important, we're going to talk about it first. Because if we don't get Scripture right, then the rest of it doesn't matter. As a, as a quick side note, I've been doing research on our, on our church family. This is going to be the 230th anniversary of the foundation of this church. And I've been doing some, some research, and as near as I can tell, the association that we first belonged to was an association that, that came out of Charleston originally. And the Charleston Association at that time held to the, what was known as the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, which was basically just the American version of the Second London from 1689. So, so even if you go back to who we were in 1792 when we were established, we still held Scripture to be first. Okay, so what does this all mean? What does it mean for us to say that we hold Scripture this highly? early on in my relationship with Audrey, in fact, I think this was probably before we were even, it's, don't worry, it's not about you, it's about your dad. Um, I think it's before we were even engaged. We were in Pennsylvania, and Dave was building a, an outdoor fire uh, place. He, he wanted to build a fireplace outside where he could cook 18th century colonial style meals because that's the kind of nerds we are. But I remember Dave and I are out there, and we're, we're working. Well, he's working, and I'm standing there. And we're talking about church stuff, and we're talking about faith. And for those of you who don't know, Audrey's father is a pastor. And we got started talking about, about one subject in particular. And it, it doesn't matter what the subject is. I'll tell you later. I mean, I'm not hiding it. I'll tell you later, but it doesn't matter. What matters is what Dave says. Because we were talking about it, and, and he said, I understand why someone might think that. And I understand why someone might believe that. But the question you have to ask yourself is this. If you're a believer, what are you going to do about Scripture? Because I get why that idea is attractive. But if it stands in contradiction to Scripture... How are you, as a believer, going to reconcile it to the Bible? I'll tell you this. Probably one of the most important and significant conversations I have had in my life. I was a believer. But I had, had never really wrestled with that question. And he's right. What are we going to do about the Bible? You know, there are things in the Bible that might be unpleasant to us. 
And there are things in the Bible that we may not like. And I would offer this. If there is nothing in Scripture that you don't wish was different, then you aren't letting Scripture convict you. Man, there are some things in there. My life would be a lot easier if it wasn't there. But it is. And so what I have to decide as a believer is what am I going to do with the Bible? What are we going to do with those tough things? You know, the, the challenge to scriptural authority in the 14 and 1500s, it was rooted in, in church tradition and power. That's what Martin Luther and John Calvin and Smith and Helvis, who were the first Baptists, that's what they were pushing back against, was tra- church tradition and power to, to raise up scripture. That was, the, that was the challenge to scriptural authority. Today, the challenge to scriptural authority looks a little different. Today, the challenge to scriptural authority is often rooted in certain ideas about sociology and psychology and in, in, in what has been called textual criticism. These things are raised by people as proof that the scriptures can't be authoritative because they're, they're not right, it's not true, it's not accurate. After all, this is... This is just a book. You need to, you need to let your, your brain tell you the truth. An example to that is this. There are those who will tell you that we know that the Gospels were written after the year 70 because the year 70 was when Jerusalem was destroyed. And there are things in the gospel that could only have been written after the destruction of Jerusalem because of of the way it describes the coming destruction. Well, that might sound like a really convincing argument on the first, but you've got to think about what's underneath that. What's underneath that is the assumption that Jesus Christ could not have known what was going to happen in the year 70 in the city of Jerusalem. You've got to make certain assumptions about what Scripture is and who God is before you can let these things challenge you. Now, there are whole courses that are taught in Bible colleges and seminaries on the reliability and authority of Scripture. And we're not going to get into all of those jots and tittles today. But let me put it this way. If there is something, if, there's, if you think that something challenges the authority of Scripture, if you think some idea that you got from from a sociology class or from a blog article or from the internet or from TV, if you think there's something that challenges the authority of Scripture and proves that Scripture isn't authoritative, there are one of three things going on. Either you don't understand the argument that you have seen. Two, you don't understand what Scripture is saying. Or three, both. So our question is this, what are we going to do about Scripture? What are we going to do about the Bible? I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to make sure that we're living into our confession. You know, that we, I've used this word to describe the Baptist faith and message. I would offer that the Shema is a confession of faith as well. A, a declaration of what it is that we believe. 
The first article of Baptist Faith and Message reads thusly. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is the record of God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. The criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. This, that's the Baptist faith and message. It's, it's the version of the Baptist faith and message that we affirm as a congregation. We've got to live into that confession. This is what we say we believe. Are we doing it? Our own congregational statement of doctrine starts this way. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament shall be the standard for the faith, teaching, and practice of this church. Is it? Now, I would like to think that it is. I would like to tell you, and I believe it with every fiber of my being, that I do not step into this pulpit until I have been in prayer that I am rightly discerning the word of God to you. as both as a congregation and as individuals, we have to make sure that the Bible is our standard and guide, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. Practically, what does this look like? Practically, let's put the word of God into our heart, as we see in verse 6. Practically, let's repeat them to our children. And in repeating them to our children, not only will it form our children, but it will form us. How many of us are doing family worship and devotion time? Not personal, but family worship and devotion time on a regular basis. How many of us are reading the words of Scripture to the children in our lives? How many of us are reading the Bible as a family? Let's repeat them at home. Let's repeat them when we're on the road, particularly if we're on I-95. Let's repeat them when we lie down. Let's repeat them when we stand up. Let's repeat them in every aspect of our lives. Now, let me encourage you to not pick up your Bible and read it while you are driving. But also let me encourage you, most of us have smartphones. There are apps that you can put on your phone that are free that will read scripture to you. There's a great app called Dwell that I'll be posting a link to later uh, today on our church Facebook page. There's a great click on that. It's wonderful. The only problem is some of the voices are so pleasing they might calm you down a little too much while you're driving. Think about that. Some of you you have... a 20-minute commute every day, a 10-minute commute every day. Some of you are in the car or on the tractor or different things over the course of the day. Instead of listening to a podcast or music, take some of that time and listen to the Word of God. We need to bind them. We need to bind the Word of God to ourselves. 
maybe not literally, but we need to make them such a part of who we are and what we do that when we go out, it, we may as well have a box on our forehead and on our hands. The way the word of God is shaping us is so noticeable to the people around us. And finally, we need to put it on the doorpost of our houses and our city gates. Everything that we do in interacting with our family and the world around us should be guided by Scripture. We're going to talk more about Scripture in the days ahead, but I hope what you see is how central God's Word is to be to God's people. To be to you. You know, I sort of gotten out of the habit of saying this. We have these, these black hardback Bibles in the pew front in front of you. If you need a copy of Scripture, if someone you know needs a copy of Scripture, take this, and, take this with you today. Because let me tell you, this is seven bucks. Seven bucks to put the Word of God in somebody else's hand. I'll take that every day and twice on Sunday. It's a good deal. We're to be formed and shaped by God's word because we are people of the book. Hear, listen, people of God. God is Lord and he is one and we're to love him with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength, and we are to make his word central to who we are and how we interact in the world. If you want to join us on that journey as we figure this out together today, this is going to be an opportunity for you to do that, for you to unite with us, or for you to just come and have prayer as we sing our hymn of invitation this morning, which is going to be hymn number...